Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi, I'm Darren Moorcroft and I have the privilege to be the Chief Executive of the Woodland Trust. The Trust is the UK's largest woodland nature conservation charity and generously supported by over 500,000 people. Uh, we manage and own nearly 30,000 hectares across the UK and we help uh, individuals, businesses, communities and landowners to make their difference when fighting climate change and nature loss. Uh, welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Series, and I'll hand you to our host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Thanks, Darren, and it's, it's a real pleasure having you on the series. Uh, I loved your contributions to the CEOs Forum, and we've uh, had some really great discussions on a variety of topics. Uh, but also, just it's lovely to see your success from RSPB into the Woodland Trust. Um, so would you begin by telling us, uh, for those listeners around the world, what your current role is, uh, and then tell us about your your career journey and your life to where you are now, the leader you are today, and, and who sort of taught you things on the way. Okay, uh, so um, I'm, as I say, the chief executive now of the of the Woodland Trust. Uh, I get the privilege to oversee uh, a team of about 550 staff that are spread across the UK, uh, all trying to make a difference both themselves and through through others using what we would consider to be kind of nature's most uh, strongest weapon in the fight against nature nature crisis and a climate crisis that we're all facing um, we have an opportunity to deploy that tool the tree the humble if but incredible tree i would say um, in a way which makes a real difference to people's lives and my kind of career path has kind of uh, been one that has led through uh, a, a relationship with conservation and nature from uh, a really early age. Um, but I, I suppose I started out um, in the suburbs of Coventry, uh, perhaps not the uh, type or demographic of uh, the conservation sector per se. I kind of came from a, uh, a, you know, with a mom and dad and a brother who, my mom and dad worked in factories in Coventry. They were uh, hardworking, they went through tough times as well as uh, good times, and in that they um, were never really that interested in nature, if I was fair to say, that wasn't something that they kind of instilled in me, um, and it kind of instilled in me during my kind of walk to school, so um, that allowed me to interact with nature on the walk to school in perhaps the way that children don't anymore, which is a real shame. Um, and in doing so, it kind of sort of set a seed uh, or planted an acorn, I suppose I should say, uh, which has kind of grown and grown to the kind of person I am today. Um, and that career path went from um, somebody who, at school, uh, you perhaps wouldn't have known I was interested in nature, and we may come on to that later. Um, but... Uh, as I got to university, it became very clear that it was a it was a passion that was going to drive my 
career through. So uh, I kind of jokingly say I, uh, I look through the prospectus of going to university because despite my kind of parents' uh, sort of background and upbringing, and they would say themselves, they were never very uh, kind of educated or, or looking at education in, in a way personally, but they were very clear that my brother and I should use education as a way to, uh, to make a real difference in our lives. And it's something that's kind of strongly been instilled in me uh, from that point. But I kind of went through the prospectus, got to Z, hadn't chosen anything and decided to do zoology. Is the is the flippant way of suggesting that I did zoology, but it was really something. It was the it was the course that kind of encapsulated the things that I was interested in in my kind of out of uh, out of education kind of life, um, and that led on to uh, a PhD. Uh, that PhD was sponsored by the RSPB, the Royal Society for Protection of Birds, another UK wide nature conservation organisation in the UK, which then led me to becoming uh, a member of staff for them. And over a 17 year period, I did multiple jobs, sort of moving up what you might consider to be the, the organizational ladder from uh, working in a region on a very specific, ge in very specific geography to, um, to working to uh, oversee UK conservation programs. Um, and at a point in time where they used to say that if you stayed at a place more than seven years you were there for life uh, that, those times have now changed and the opportunity at the Woodland Trust came up and I thought this just looks too good to be true so I joined them in 2017 as a director uh, for their estate and outreach work so and I thought this is what a fantastic job this is I get to go and buy places which are going to be kept in perpetuity for society for people for nature and have the real pleasure of buying a mountain in Scotland, uh, created the first UK's uh, Young People's Forest site, which is going from strength to strength. And those, those types of activities, you just can't kind of look back on and without being you know, a huge sense, sense of pride. And then when they gave, I know I had the opportunity to, to interview for the chief executive role and they gave the privilege of, of giving it to me, um, it's kind of, that's where I am today. And that happened in 2019 at a time when woods and trees were kind of on everybody's, everybody's lips. You know, we uh, in the UK had just moved into kind of general election mode. Uh, the, the politics of the day were, were trying to outbid uh, each other with uh, the parties saying they were gonna plant X million trees or uh, X billion trees uh, in, the, in their manifestos. And so I kind of came in and uh, trying to shape how we do that well in order that we get the benefits that trees can provide us because uh, we know that you can do it well and get them or you can do it badly and and create an awful lot of problems yeah it's fascinating and it's triggered a number of thoughts um one is that i've been listening to a very interesting book called younger next year uh about we either grow or we decay and it's very much an analogy for your your woods and um, there is decay going on all the time, of course, like in our own bodies, but this is why we need to keep improving and training and the nutrition, how we, very similar, how we feed the, the uh, agriculture and things. And when we had the earlier episode and you were part of it with the other CEOs, uh, along with Lee, my wife, uh, we were talking about legacy. I, I was really struck by the fact you're the only organization I know 
who thinks in a thousand year legacies, you know, for the, the, the length of some of the older trees and things like that. That was just very profound. And um, also, I think it is nice to, having got to know you a bit, that, that reading and learning about leadership and your profession and the environment is something that goes right back to your earlier education that your parents insisted on. That old saying that all leaders are readers, but not all readers are leaders. Uh, and I think it's very beholden on us as leaders to keep learning. And uh, we, we had a conversation before we just started about how you can learn from so many different areas. And we're gonna talk about this in your favorite book later on. But thanks for that, Darren. Um, and then really going on from that to during your life, you know, life is in the transitions, there's some highs and lows in our life. It, what would have been the most joyous, happiest, happiest times for you? And what did you learn from that? And then also either in your personal life or in your work, we all have some really tough times. What, what has been one of your darkest moments and what did you learn from that? Yeah, so I suppose if I, if I start with the, the darkest moment, uh, but it's, and, and I suppose it, what I, I suppose what I will say is it, within that darkness, there was also light. Um, and so for me, you know, uh, probably about five, five, six years ago, my, my mother and my mother and father, we're fortunate over the last uh, 18 years have lived next door to us. Um, and five, five so years ago, my mother was diagnosed with motor neuron disease. And for anyone who has experienced such a, uh, such a disease, it's, you know, it's horrendous. Um, and the, the speed with which she deteriorated was, uh, you know, really fast. Uh, and to watch that was a really kind of dark time for not only me, but the, the rest of my family, the, but the, the thing that I took from it was the opportunity, because of being so close, to be part of you know, a very close caring system around her to make that last kind of 12 months as hard as it was, as easy uh, as it could be, and to show the appreciation for what she'd done uh, for me and for, for my family, uh, you know, her grandchildren and my wife, uh, at a time when she needed us the most. So I think it's both a dark point, but also, a, a, you know, for perversely a proud point, because I wouldn't have wanted her to go through it without that opportunity for to know that how much she was appreciated. And I think the lesson for me in that is uh, don't leave it too late to show your appreciation of those you appreciate, both at work and, uh, and at home because you kind of never know whether you'll have the opportunity and you don't want to miss, you know, you, you certainly don't want to miss that opportunity uh, when it comes. Yeah, that, that is so very powerful. And I'm reminded that all of us um, lose people at different stages. My brother's very insistent, quite rightly, as a surgeon, Graham says, we mustn't talk about we've lost them or they've gone, they've died. We've got to accept that people die. We are all going to die. There's only, you know, there used to be two certainties in life, death and taxes, but the rich have now found ways to avoid the taxes. <laughs> yeah. and certainly Apple and Google have. Um, so, so all of us will face death. And Alexander the Great and his mule driver, as the Stokes would say, are both buried next to each other and they're both dead. Um, so it's how you make the most of that time. And I found that very very touching the way you talked about, I know someone with motor neurons and, and the way you talked about 
that time in decline and uh, really relate to that. So thank you for sharing that. It's, it's a tough one. What about a more joyous, happy time and what you learned from that? Uh, I suppose joyous, um, well, to be honest, there has been so many that I'm proud of from a, from a work perspective, which might be the, as, as I mentioned earlier, that kind of that first mountain. I, I like to say the first mountain that the Woodland Trust has acquired because it's, it's a really sizable expression of the need for us to safeguard large scale areas. Um, but I suppose at a personal level, the, the one that I kind of look back on and think, wow, that, you know, I never thought I would have done that was uh, I, uh, when I, you know, I, I, if I can paint the picture. So, so we were in student digs in, uh, in Newcastle, um, my now wife and I, uh, the phone rings. We just, we just basically sat down to eat and the phone rings to say that uh, I'd been kind of accepted to do my PhD. Um, and the, I was so happy I couldn't eat my meal. <laughs> um, and, and I suppose the, the two lessons I took from that, because I kind of, uh, I went down and, you know, my, you know, I was fortunate that my PhD was at Oxford and the, uh, I'd gone down there and I'd be, I was very well prepared. So I, what I've found in, from a personal perspective is if you really want something, then you have to give your everything in order to achieve it. And if you don't achieve it, having given everything, then you can look yourself in the mirror and say, you know, well, it wasn't for me. Um, but I kind of walked into that uh, interview, having garnered help from a lot of people, again, going back to that kind of appreciation that none of us, none of us can do this on our own, and walked in, put on the table exactly how I was going to do this PhD from day one. And, the, and I can still I can still uh, see the look on the face of the three interviewers. They're kind of like, what? <laughs> you, you know, and, and, and every question that they asked was kind of answered in the pre-thinking. Um, and I kind of walked out thinking I did my best and but not really not really believing that, that you know, a, a PhD from such an you know, austere uh, university was something that I was going to aspire to. Um, and it, you know, that phone call came and I kind of just couldn't believe it. And so, so in pride terms, I just thought, you know, that's, that's the lesson I learned that, you know, be prepared, do your best, be, make sure you give of your best. And if you do that, good things will happen. And if they don't happen, they weren't meant to be. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on that because uh, a PhD from Oxford uh, is impressive by anybody's standard in the globe. And, and lo looking back, to the young 16 to 18 year old Darren, who hadn't yet thought about doing a PhD at Oxford, or indeed being a CEO of a, a very successful organization like your own. Um, what bit of advice would you give young, young self if you went back in a time machine and met yourself with all the anxieties that a young 16 year old carries? Yeah. Um, I suppose the, I suppose the one I would, because it, it, it comes back to the time that we're living in now, we're seeing the young voice really rise up and talk about, you know, the environment, talk about nature and talk about uh, the need for action. And me as a 16 year old wouldn't have done that. It was, you know, I, I grew up in a time where that would, would have been kind of completely out, you know, it could have been a complete outlier in terms of the, 
the network that I was, uh, you know, I was I was in in you know the I was at school. I was playing a lot of sports, and therefore, you know, being the person who kind of liked like the birds, the bees, and the butterflies alongside playing those things was something which I just didn't share. And I think so. My, what I would go back and say to my younger self now, because you know, I kind of I couldn't be kind of proud and I couldn't be shouting it loud enough louder now is actually be courageous in what you believe and be confident about it and don't hide it from anybody whether you know i i i could probably guarantee that most of my friends at school when i was 16 didn't know i was kind of heavily into nature uh didn't know that you know when i when we went on holiday as a family i'd be the one badgering my parents to take me to that that woodland or that marsh to go and see some species or see some have some experience um but they would have thought oh he you know he plays football he plays cricket he plays basketball he plays tennis he plays hockey uh he's kind of this the standard kind of lad at school uh so that's yeah i think you know that kind of be courageous of who you are and and don't hide anything yeah great great advice so let's next go round from that wisdom that you'd share with your young self about really being yourself and finding a voice into the eight components of what make up high-performing leaders that we, our research has, has shown with the Inspiring Leadership Compass. Um, and the first one is your true north, your MQ, your moral quotient. So what would be your top three foundational values that you've held on to throughout your life and have proved to be really important in your role as the CEO of the Woodland Trust. Yeah. So well, I suppose the first one leads off to what I was just saying, because I think it's it's grown in the sense of integrity and being kind of true to yourself and um, honest with each other. So, you know, so acting in a way which is, you know, you, you would if somebody was shining a spotlight on you or you, you know, you're in a in a darkened room. I think the uh, that kind of real kind of integrity of doing what you say you're going to do um and it's a bit of a double-edged sword if i'm honest for me because you know i'm i went through a period in my work career where i was i would i would happily kind of say you know i'm a i'm an overpromiser and an overachiever and i would take you know i'd wear it as a badge of honor i'm you know and if there was more to do i would just do more and and work longer hours and i think so um so i need to be careful with that kind of integrity to actually be able to say no, I'm not going to do that rather than, you know, putting alongside a, you know, a desire to please others and say uh, yes to something and then feel absolutely, you know, it's in my integrity to actually fulfill that. Uh, so, so that, I suppose that would be the first one. I think the, the second is around, you know, being really, really keen on having a positive impact. So being impactful in what I do is really important. So, I hear a lot uh, of people say how busy they are, and I'm busy, but I kind of want to be busy and have action that takes impact, makes impact happen. So it's really about ensuring that uh, what I do has, you know, delivers an outcome. And I'll do things which um, I'll sometimes. So my father, I'll, I'll give you a, a kind of brief example. My father will see me in the garden, and he'll say. You're always in the garden. You must love gardening. You know, it's, you know, it's a it's a good job you love gardening. 
well, actually, I don't like gardening at all, but I like the outcome. So I like the fact that when I go out there, I will see the nature and the wildlife that I'm trying to attract by doing the action. And therefore, it's about having a positive impact in that way. Uh, and thirdly, I suppose we've, we've, we've spoken about it and mentioned it already, which is curiosity and the need and the want to continually learn. You know, I, uh, I have a really strong values and belief that I am in no way and perhaps never will be the finished article that I would like to be, but I will always continually strive to be that. And I think that for, for me as an individual, that for uh, the organisation I've got the privilege of leading is really important because striving for new learning, taking insight from, from different places and perspectives um, allows me to really think about using time to learn as actual work rather than I'll work and then, oh, I must find time to do some development or do some, you know, some, some sort of kind of continual personal, personal development activities. Um, you know, it is core to actually kind of who I am and what I want to become that, you know, that sort of drives me. Yeah, I, I like that. And, and two thoughts trigger. One is that um, we're always work in progress, I think is a, a very true thing. And that it's life is a is a journey. It's not a destination. We haven't. And this is why I I do worry about good friends or people I've known who retire at 50 or 53 or 55. Retiring from what? I, from from living, from from creating, from being curious. And I I would like clearly not to work at such a heavy pace now I'm close to 60 but I, I will temper things down but I still want to be at it as like you adding value coaching people doing these broadcasts I tend to carry on doing them for years to come I love them it doesn't feel like work at all it feels like you and I are having a conversation the fact that 180,000 people will be listening to it in 55 countries is is a spin-off um, but we're doing it to pay it forward to others and I also was, was uh, quite taken by um, the, the many of the CEOs are very highly driven and they, they have to, and indeed I help them in the coaching, tone it down a bit because they, they can drive themselves to mental health issues or others to have problems because they can't keep up with the pace. And so this, this whole thing about overpromise, overachiever, working longer hours, you also need to make sure you give time to your family, to your own health and well-being. And if in a, a list of priorities, it must be your own health and well-being and your own sleep and nutrition first, then your family and others, then the colleagues that you work with, then the organization and the results. But people often forget about themselves. And I see them getting heavily overweight, ill, having very high blood pressure, um, setting themselves up to die. And, and one or two, sadly, of CEOs caught, caught cancer, developed cancer. And some, when they looked through it in the brain cancer, one of them in particular, the neurosurgeon said, it's because you've been living off adrenaline and cortisol all your life. You're just like, when are you off? When do you turn off? And, and the answer was, she didn't. Very successful, but she was, she was driving herself to an early death. And others, unfortunately, have died or got Alzheimer's later in life. So there's a real health warning to us. And, and we have these four drivers they talk about, which are you know, drivers of humans. And I'm afraid I, I suffer from all of them. But it's the 
please others, work hard, be strong, and hurry up drivers. And I don't know about yourself, but we probably, many of the CEOs I know suffer from all those psychological drivers, which is fine sometimes, but not all the time, as my wife will often tell me, just to, just to not be too intense. So some just interesting points to bring out there. Uh, carrying on with the sort of quick fire questions around the compass, PQ, meaning and purpose, uh, vocation, calling, Dharma. Um, why do you do what you do, Darren, as CEO of the Woodland Trust? So I suppose it goes back to that that young boy walking through the country lanes on, on his way to school. I think the, I suppose I've always said to my my children, you know, if you do something that you're passionate about, it's, it's a bit like what you were saying earlier, Jonathan, it, it doesn't feel like work. And um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing something where I believe, you know, in you know, the fact that, you know, at the moment we have a society where the economy is beginning to be recognised as a kind of wholly owned subsidiary of nature and the environment. And we need to really rethink how, you know, our systems and the, you know, this widely, now more widely accepted view that we're the first generation to understand climate change and the last generation to be able to do something about it. Well, I, you know, from a personal point of view, and also when I'm talking to the senior leadership of, of the Woodland Trust, we're in an incredibly privileged position to be able to do something material about those two really big threats to humanity. And so, and that drives the purpose and the vocation kind of in me, you know, I kind of perhaps as that 16 year old wouldn't have thought I would have been doing that, but this is, um, you know, this is kind of what it feels like I've kind of uh, been put on this earth to, to do. It kind of sounds, sounds a bit trite, but the, um, I, and it, I was, I was, what, a, what a call to mind is I, I remember, you know, I'm a big sports fan. So I remember somebody saying of Magic Johnson, the very you know, great NBA uh, basketball player, that um, he never needed an alarm clock because he, and, and, I, and I kind of, I never need an alarm clock because I get up and I kind of want to do the things that, you know, I've got to do on that day. Even sometimes on the days where I, you know, like most people, I think, well, you know, yesterday will probably be better than today because I've got to deal with something that's not, you know, not as great. But even on those days, if I keep in mind the fact that this is a journey towards somewhere better, then actually I can, you know, it makes it worthwhile. Yeah, great point, Darren. And, and the next one round is health quotient, HQ, uh, physical and mental health and well-being. Uh, what tip would you pass on as a senior leader um, in the way you look after your mental health, a uh, tip on how you look after your physical health and, and your well-being? What would you pass on? Uh, so I suppose the, uh, the perhaps obvious one for, for, for given my, my, who I am or who I, where I work is the, the real value of getting out into nature uh, for, for both physical and, and mental well-being. You know, I, I think what we found during the, the current sort of COVID uh, endemic is the, uh, is the fact that uh, people have heightened awareness of just how valuable green space and getting out into, uh, into the kind of woods and, uh, and other habitats that are out there, really, really helping them to, to improve their, their mental well-being. We know that studies show um, people in hospital recover better if they can see 
you know, see a tree from the window or see green space from the window. Um, and I'm really fortunate, you know, and, I, and you know, the, the COVID situation has hit very disproportionately across society and we shouldn't lose sight of that. But my, you know, my fortuitous position is I can walk out of my, my house and be in, a, be in a garden, which is green space and have that kind of refresh of nature. Um, so in terms of taking care of my own personal kind of mental uh, and physical well-being, it's, it's you know, I, I get up early, uh, being outside in the garden during the dawn chorus is, you know, there are few, fewer things more uplifting for me personally than that. Or if I spend a day on Zoom, getting out for five, simply five minutes, change of scenery um, really, you know, really helps. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's probably been my, my, my one tip. The other reflection, if, if I can, is what COVID has meant for me personally is think much more around that work-life balance. So it's forced me to not be on the move quite so much. And it's forced me to be at home more. And I've kind of thankfully utilized that time a lot more to, to spend time playing sport with, with one of my daughters. We, you know, she now looks at my works program and kind of goes, when can we play tennis rather than, um, and I think that's, you know, that balance really both helps physically and mentally, you know, yeah. um, he's, right. he's the gazelle on the, on the tennis court. I'm the kind of slightly asthmatic ox, but we're, you know, we're getting there. No, it's a, it's a lovely story, and and your anecdote about um, how the environment and how COVID has affected people in different ways. Someone said nicely that, uh, and quite profoundly, that we've all been in the storm of the endemic, uh, and we're all in the storm of the environment, but we're all in different sized boats, and indeed some are not even in boats; they've just got a rubber ring that they're clinging onto, or a bit of driftwood, or they're swimming, and some of them have gone under. Uh, and so it's all well and good saying we've all been through it together, but we've all been through it in very different ways. And, and I consider myself very lucky to be here in Lincolnshire uh, with my wife. We've made rooms into offices uh, and um, we've got nature right outside the back door. So I can walk Archie in and, and, and make the most of nature twice a day and then do fitness training in a garage gym, which I've made. Uh, people are lucky in, in what they have, but those who don't, some of them have made some great uh, steps to find ways to make the most of what they can. And you know, it's the controlling the controllables that the Stokes would talk about, you know, go and do something about it, be proactive, don't just sit there and complain. Um, so I think that's a very good point you make. We'll go into EQ next, emotional quotient. Um, what, what have you done to develop your emotional and social intelligence? I mean, because people could say, you know, here is some Oxford PhD guy, some big egghead, just talk, talking lots of uh, technical jargon and stuff. How, how do you relate and connect to people wherever you meet them on a hillside uh, up, to their, up to their knees in mud and slime, trying to sort out a problem uh, or repairing a tractor that they're doing or, or, or member of the public? How do, you, how do you connect with people? Well, I suppose like most things, I'm a work in progress, my wife would tell me. Uh, the, I, I think the first thing is, is kind of listening to listening to them, so actively listening uh, and taking as many cues that you can. Uh, you know, I suppose one of the challenges over the last eighteen months is quite a lot of those interactions have been two dimensional via via screens rather than the face to face. And I'm I suppose I get my energy from 
from people face to face and being able to interact in that way. Um, and understanding different perspectives are out there. Uh, you know, we, um, one of the things that, you know, the network that I'm, that I'm in could often be just the environmental network if I'm not careful. And therefore you get into your own echo chamber and you're all agreeing with each other and your perspectives are getting closer and closer and you become more certain on what you believe. Um, I think broadening that out, make sure you are actively listening. Don't accept everybody's perspective as being, being true. Um, I think that there's, a, there's a great quote, and I don't know who it's attributable. You might know, Jonathan, but I think it was said to, to Donald Trump that you're, you know, you're entitled to your, your own opinions, but not your own facts. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the nature of how I kind of would go into sort of conversations with people. So pick them up if I believe that they are saying things that are factually incorrect, but don't necessarily uh, attack or, or pick them up for things where they're, they're expressing an opinion because it's their, you know, it's their lived experience that's going to generate that perspective. Um, but as I say, I'm, I'm work in progress, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, we, we, I think we all are. And uh, uh, people who know me will uh, be close to me will say, considering you're teaching people about motion intelligence, there's times when you just stunningly blunt in your comments when you should have been more diplomatic and, and danced around and been very British. But actually, I'm also from Yorkshire and we tend to say things as they are. Um, what is that? Everything is possible if you're prepared to live with the consequences and pay the price. Um, so just be careful uh, of what you wish for. I think the other thing that, that comes to mind is we often have good intentions, but we don't realize what our impact will be. We judge others by their impact that we're experiencing, but we never check what their intention was in the first place. So it always is a good reminder to us, you and I and others listening, to check what was what was the other person's intention, because it may have landed badly with you, but they may never have intended that. They may have done. They may have intended to be deliberately rude and offend you. Um, some have a great skill at that. It's one, um, of, the, it's one of the things that I say to, uh, you know, to, to people in the organisation is, and particularly internally, because any organization of any set scale, we you know, has potential kind of tension points. But if you if you're assuming positive intent, mm. then actually you will uh, you will ensure that the conversation that you have after something goes wrong will get us to a better place uh, rather than it becoming something which festers or becomes kind of corrosive. So yeah, I'm, I'm constantly saying is assume positive intent. Uh, particularly internally, you know, there are some of the battles that we have externally where assuming positive intent is really difficult. Yeah. yeah, it's a very good one. And I think also people lose a sense of perspective. I know I can do at times. And uh, the greatest question to ask is, has anybody died? And if the answer is no, then really how important is this? And are we just losing, losing a sense of proportion or getting caught up in the, uh, the lexicon of a particular sentence or whatever it might be? Um, which takes us nicely on to CQ, which is cultural or collective intelligence, it's how people think and how they work together and how they respect differences, both in thinking, as you have been saying quite nicely, and different felt experiences, different cultures, different backgrounds. Uh, it's diversity, equality and inclusion. What would be your top tip about developing uh, a diverse culture in your organisation? Uh, so I suppose there's the, the honest starting point is for both the Woodland Trust and the environmental sector is there is a you know severe lack of diversity within 
uh, within the within the organisations, and it's something that we are actively pursuing and and tackling. So it's one of my kind of big strategic shifts, and and one of the reasons why we've recruited a head of diversity and inclusion to report directly to me, mm. because I think the you know the environmental sector is the second least diverse sector in the UK, really? um, and that's not you know that's not good for a whole range of reasons not least the sustainability of the of the sector but actually you know we as an organization rightly talk about inclusion being incredibly important you know it's one of the reasons why those benefits that we give for trees and woods to people should be open to everybody and they're free access to everybody from our estate you know you don't you know i can't sit here and say we're fully inclusive if i'm then going to put one of the greatest resources that we have available to people behind a paywall that they can't access. Um, but I think the, I suppose the, the tip is to try and unlearn some of the things that we're kind of told when we're younger. So, you know, that old adage of treat people as you wish to be treated. Well, I suppose what I've come to the, to the realization through conversations with, uh, with colleagues and, and others is treat people how they want to be treated. And it may not be how you want to be treated because you have different uh, kind of cultural backgrounds and expectations. Mm. So don't assume, ask, and then treat them in the way uh, that they wish to be treated. That would be my kind of overarching tip uh, and something which I think we can all kind of and must get better at. Yeah, it's such a good point. Uh, and of course, it's it's embedded in much of uh say christian scriptures and teaching to teach your neighbor as, as treat your neighbor as yourself um but you are exactly right they don't want to be treated like you they want to be treated how they want to be treated and until you find out their life story and I, you and i have talked about the importance of, of learning people's life stories until you learn someone else's life story and you've walked a mile in their shoes you, how dare you assume you know what they want or how they think or what would motivate them it, it, that is that is always work in progress understanding what others want and as humans we're very complex anyway but it's particularly so as we become more global um, and we need to see other people's perspective particularly now for me you know here from my home in Lincolnshire I can connect with people all around the world and, and I've got to know where they're coming from and what their culture is and what their upbringing has been Okay, um, the next one, uh, the last three is, is RQ, um, resilience against adversity. Uh, then we'll talk about brand quotient, and then finally legacy. What what has been one top tip you give people about being more more resilient? What would you say? Um, I suppose it's a my tip would be it's your starting mindset. So. Um, I've often been accused of being over optimistic. I'm not sure, it, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing I'd, I'd wear as a wear as a badge of honor anyway. But I think it, I'm not sure you can be too optimistic when you are tackling some of the things that we are that we're that we're facing. Um, but it feels like if you look for the positive in a situation, then that can help build your own personal resilience and the resilience of the situation. So um, I was once taught a a, a great technique called. Uh, which you may have heard of, with moan, 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 uh, where you allow somebody to, to moan about something that they care about for a minute at you without interrupting, actively listening, 
and then thinking about the energy that they are demonstrating and the passion that they're demonstrating and the thing that they're complaining about and thinking, looking at that in a, in a positive perspective. And how do you switch that energy into potentially, you know, a solution to what they're, what they're concerned about? Um, and if you, if you can do that, then actually when, when you are being potentially hit with a tidal wave of, of complaints that might be thinking, you know, life is getting hard, Actually, it could be, you know, just the start of the conversation, which unlocks the solution for either that problem or a bigger problem. So yeah, that's where I kind of get my my personal resilience from, and I would suggest others could as well. Yeah, you, you're triggering me something as well that um, people often say to you, "I can't do that. It's not possible. I can't do that. Uh, I'm not able to. I'm not good enough." Um, words like that, and and I love the alternative positive assumption that's an assumption they're making they can't do it they're not good enough they're not bright enough or they're not good at emotional intelligence or whatever it is or that they can never get that job uh, and i then have learned to ask that and if you could do it how would you do it and instantly the brain like a little mouse in a maze goes looking for the cheese down the passageways and it goes hunting around making the neural connections and within a second or two People go, oh, I did it this way. Well, many go, they just told you they couldn't do it. So I think it's always a great tip. If you could do it, how would you do it? It's, it's an assumption still. Uh, but people go, that's stupid. I've just told you I can't do it. I know. But if you could do it, how would you do it? And you can see them just pausing and going, is this guy for real? <laughs> like the radio producer who um, went to give a podcast at a, a radio station. The guy said, so who are you? And he thought, hang on, he's invited me here. Is this a really stupid question or is this really deep and profound? Like, who are you? you know? um, but I, I think if you could do it, how would you do it? Is a great question for any CEO. Thank you for that, um, Darren. Um, from resilience to brand, um, 360 feedback. Uh, you've been doing some. Um, what would you encourage others about the importance of 360 to understand your brand, reputation, image and impact? What people say about you when you're not in the room? how important is it for a leader interest in your view uh incredibly important it's something which you know i've uh i've as you know i've invested in personally and will be invested in for for those uh else in the organization i think that's getting that sense of uh, perspective from different parts of the organization uh internally and externally how they view you and uh how that then relates to how you want to be viewed and how you think you're being viewed is really important because we'll all have blind spots, which, um, you know, if we don't ask the question, we can be in blissful ignorance of. Um, and, you know, I kind of want uh, personally to be kind of known for, you know, for those values that I talked about earlier. Um, I want the organization and I, you know, I realize I've got really privileged position to represent an organization which has a legacy which will go well beyond me. And I don't want to be a barrier to that organization, this organization achieving all that it's capable of doing. So understanding my impact in the interactions that I have uh, is really important. So kind of that's where I see the value of personal brand. It allows me to make sure that the next person that sits in the chair or the person after me um, has a stronger platform with which to achieve great things than uh, that I currently hold. 
Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great way of doing it. And then the thing that we talked about, the thousand years, and we had the, the uh, conversation with the other CEOs the other week, legacy. What, what would you like the legacy of your life and your work to be? Because, of course, legacy is by its very nature after you've died. Um, what would you like people to say about you, Darren? Uh, so I think made, you know, made a difference uh, would be the, you know, in, in, in the short, uh, the shorthand. I think, as you as you mentioned, Jonathan, we we at the Woodland Trust have the the pleasure of owning and managing woods that, you know, a, you know, are, are age old. And there are, you know, there are natural world crown jewel equivalents of St. Paul's Cathedral or the Mona Lisa. And having those in your care and ensuring their safety and uh, security in perpetuity for people and for nature is, you know, is a fantastic uh, privilege and a legacy that, you know, I think, you know, most people I would suggest are proud, would be proud of. I certainly, you know, would be incredibly proud of if somebody says, well, he, he left the organization in a, in a place where those things were safer and did more of them because mm. we need more of them um and helped other people so that i suppose that's the uh environmental side of things i think the people side of things as a legacy i'd say enable people to make their own difference so both personally either helping you know that curiosity value to come through in terms of continual learning for people who are working in the woodland trust or partners that we're working with but also giving people an opportunity that they perhaps wouldn't otherwise have. You know, we can often in the environmental sector take for granted some things that we do on a daily basis, you know, like as, as simple as plant a tree. Now, the Woodland Trust sees 4,000 schools and communities plant trees each year, you know, five plus million trees are going in the ground. Um, that's a really powerful connection. And even if a fraction of those school children get a connection that lasts a lifetime because of something that the trust has done under the time where I'm here. You know, one of those is a fantastic legacy. A hundred is a incredible legacy and a thousand and a million is a, you know, whatever the, um, the descriptor could be, but you know, that would, that would be fantastic for me. And I kind of happily, you know, lie in the ground, wait for the roots of the trees to, to capture the nutrients from me and go, you know, and grow the next generation. I love it. I love it. And, and you were making me think there about having, obviously, as you know, my brother David dying uh, at short notice, uh, aged just 63. I was thinking, what do I want on my gravestone? And uh, how would I like to be remembered? And uh, I think we should think about this every day, that, 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 that have I made a difference today? If today was my last day, have I made a difference to, just to one person? And I think that's, it's a good, good check-in, um, keeping us honest with ourselves and looking in the mirror, uh, the man in the mirror or the woman in the mirror. Executive teams, uh, what are your top tips from turning um, probably a toxic team or maybe a toxic individuals into a higher performing team? Uh, so I, I suppose the thinking about the balance of the team I think it's really important. I think one of, one of the things I've found in teams I've previously managed is you get those different uh, personalities and some people are kind of the, um, 
the Eeyore of the group, if that, we use that analogy, and the and some of the Tiggers of the group. And you have to kind of blend those, uh, blend those uh, well. And I think you know having having a dynamic which is um, positive and forward-looking, and setting that context, I think really helps to challenge those who are perhaps potentially more toxic in that in that conversation. I think you you know you can't you can't allow them to draw down uh, the energy. And you can't allow them to become the, the speed with which the team operate, because if you move at the speed of the slowest, you will never achieve what uh, that, that team is, is fully capable of. So you have to, you have to tackle that. Um, I think the, um, I, had a, I had a colleague who would describe himself as pathologically positive. He actively persuaded himself to be positive long enough that it became his kind of nature if that's possible and his impact on any team was incredible when he wasn't there the team dynamic shifted and i think as a as a leader of any team it's thinking about the the people that you have in the room for the conversations that you need to have in order to make sure that you get uh you know to positive outcomes whether you know whether that's a decision uh or whether that's a uh, a kind of recommendation for action. If you don't have the right people in the room, you can talk around a subject and never really get to a conclusion. Uh, so good. I like that one. Pathologically positive. And um, yeah, people can be radiators of energy and positivity and uh, action, or they can be drained. And you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with in your life. Make sure they're people who add love, life and happiness to you and that they don't suck like Harry Potter's Dementors. They don't suck the energy out of your soul and your body. I, I do believe in that very strongly. Uh, last, two, last two questions. Uh, we're going to do favourite book, and then we're going to get your introduction and your top tip, uh, your two-minute top tip at the end, which will be include part of this, but it also is a standalone. So I'll ask you to introduce yourself then. Um, your favourite book on leadership, and, and why is it one that you recommend people read? Uh, so the book would be Matthew Said's uh, Rebel Ideas, uh, and it's really uh, exploring the value of diversity in thinking as well, you know, rather than simply diversity of kind of characteristics and demographics. And I think the it was the first book that I read when I was given the role of, of CEO, uh, or I should say I listened to because I, I'm a big audio book rather than, than reader, um, probably because my disposition is to be moving about and doing things whilst, uh, uh, whilst taking in information. The, the book really kind of goes into the kind of practical rationale for having people who don't look like you, think like you, talk like you, around you, in order that you get the perspectives which mean you come to better decisions and better conclusions and better thinking. Um, and I also like it because it talks about real examples and kind of, it can then be practically deployed. Uh, so I, you know, I take a lot out of books which um, give kind of examples where somebody's done something and had an impact. And I kind of act as a sponge for that and think about, well, how could it work in kind of my world? And if it can, look to deploy it. If it can't, then take it as a, as kind of, you know, and park it till the time when it probably can. Great. Thanks, Darren. Um, now. If you just introduce yourself again, the role you do, 
um, as a standalone, like you did at the beginning, and and share your top tip on leadership, just in a two minutes spare, and, and we'll wrap up at then. Uh, so, hello, I'm Darren Moorcroft, and I have the privilege to be the CEO of the Woodland Trust, the UK's largest woodland conservation charity, which is supported generously by over 500,000 people across the UK. Uh, we own and manage woods and trees uh, of up to 30,000 hectares, and we provide those free of charge to people so that we can tackle the climate crisis, the nature crisis, and people's health and well-being. Uh, and my top tip is actually linked to that, which is about get out into nature and take your discussions out of the office and into the open air. Um, get out and change the dynamic of the relationship that you will have with the people that you're talking to. Uh, you often see, and I've been guilty of this in previous roles, of having an office where somebody will come in and report to you on what they're doing. And it's a very hierarchical conversation. And if you want people to talk the truth to power and to talk and to tell you honestly about what's going on, then get them to be more comfortable and get them away from that hierarchical sense that they're having to walk through your door, sit on your chair and talk to you uh, in that context. So whether it's a creative conversation, a challenging conversation, I think the outcomes, the relationships that you'll build and the leadership that you'll show will be all the better for doing it in the open air or under a canopy of trees. Fantastic. Darren, thank you. It's been a great pleasure and a real honor to have you on the series. Uh, I've really enjoyed working with you. I look forward to continuing to do so. And uh, congratulations on the work you're doing and thank you for your contribution. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.